We're in John chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 16 to 18, kind of going back and forth throughout this time and process, uh, trying to discover what the Lord would have for us in terms of a preaching unit. I mean, one could spend probably a series on verse 16, clearly one of the most common verses in the world, the most well-known. It's, again, simple in its statements, but the things that are unfolded there are, are powerful. We could take it all the way to verse 21 in its context, the end of Jesus' uh, didactic that he has going. He's turned now from the discourse or the exchange, the dialogue he's had with Nicodemus. He's now turned to straight instruction. He's building off of the things that he stirred up in Nicodemus's heart as Nicodemus has been troubled by the things that haven't just challenged one or two things in his life. They've turned his entire world upside down. And so Jesus is unpacking that further. I don't know that it's what he's unpacking going forward is going to uh, assuage the confusion that Nicodemus has. As a matter of fact, if anything else, it's going to confuse him further still. God is often pleased to take a process route with many of us as preconceived notions about what salvation is and how it's brought about need to change. And he does that through his word and his spirit at times and in, in measures that please him for his glory's sake and for the salvation of souls. After all, these are those who find their place in the book of life from before the world was made. These are those who by name and by soul and as they're crafted in their mother's wombs have been set apart to become the bride for his son. This is big stuff. This is a, a big deal. So we want to take whatever care we need this morning as we work our way through this very important passage. So let's read that together. John three sixteen through 18 and we'll get started here this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. Father, we tread on holy ground certainly here. It is with some measure of fear and trepidation that we even enter into this holy of holies, as it were. This is your Son we're talking about, who the Scriptures make very clear is your only Son, who is also, as we've been learning, Messiah. He's the anointed one, the Christ who has come for the salvation of souls. He has come, Lord, to provide forgiveness for sins that we might spend an eternity with you in glorious perfection. Thank you, Lord. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. We pray. Amen. This past couple years has decidedly been marked by at least a couple of words. I would say, for me, um, and you might characterize them differently, maybe you'd have more words to add, or maybe you don't think these are asked, act quite accurate, but a restlessness and intolerance. The restlessness and intolerance that we see that has gripped our country has really uh, been leading into this alarming spike in hatred and contempt. People, I, I've I haven't seen in my lifetime the culture be so utterly intolerant. And I thought about that for a while, and I thought, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because do you remember not too many years ago that the big mantra was for tolerance? 
That was the, the plea. That was the cry from the heart. Tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. All those things that the people of God find, even in some cases, reprehensible. Well, that, that plea from the heart has become a battle cry. It's a war. The war is on. And those who will not, and it's not just a matter of, of the, you know, bending the knee or, or uh, being tolerant. That's not enough. Now you must bow down with your not only acceptance, but we want, no, we demand your approval. And if you don't get a, give it to us, you will be socially castigated. So this, this time frame shouldn't be lost on us. It's found squarely right in the midst of our eschaton, our doctrine of end times, right? And so in Matthew 12, and you're familiar with this, second half of verse 9, Matthew 24, rather, verse 9, second half to verse 12, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. Know somebody like that? I do. Somebody very, very close to me who had been a Christian my entire adult life. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will rise, arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will become increased, that been happening? The love of many will what? Grow cold. We shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? We shouldn't be surprised at the outworking of what God has made clear to us will in fact happen. So it's a most intolerant time. And people are restless in their anxieties and their fears. And they're getting more and more intolerant and more demanded and bursting out of closets and every other nook and cranny place with whatever they want to indulge, which had heretofore, for the most part, remained private. Just be tolerant with us. Now it's here's who I am. And you will not just accept it, you will approve of it. We'll get to you eventually. Whether it's in your business or in your church, wherever it is, you're going to be confronted by this, whether or not you don't just accept, but you approve of it. It's, it's coming, isn't it? I think it is. So with these sensitivity levels running high, everybody's very, very tender easily hurt and wounded, right? So there's zero tolerance. That's the rule that reigns. Zero tolerance. We say something, we do something that they disapprove of, doesn't meet the agenda, doesn't meet the tenets of this new religion. We're in trouble. We'll find out about it. Now they can be open about their disapproval. No, they can be rabid about it in some cases. So there's an immediate public censure. Social media, wherever it happens to be, behind the scenes, behind closed doors. They can't keep it contained anymore. I just really disapprove of you. And that needs, you need to stop, you're wrong. So it's this restlessness, this intolerance. Now more than ever, do we need this verse and the love that's embedded in the heart of Christ himself. But we have to know what that love looks like. And that's what we want to spend our, our time doing. So, yes, Titus 3, verse 3, second part to 5, first part. Yes, we were hated by others and hating one another. That's us. That's what we do in the flesh in the default setting. We, we're, we're more quick to disapprove, to judge, and to have contempt for someone else. But here he goes on, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Praise the Lord, do we need saving out of this mess. It's most discouraging. 
and can lead to despair if we're not careful. If we don't cling to what this passage is talking about, embrace it wholeheartedly, no, 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 take it into our hearts, metabolize it in our souls, we will be affected, no, infected by the things that I'm talking about, won't we? We maybe already are. It creeps into the church like, a, like an infection, and you can see it. The church, church itself becomes more restless and intolerant. We don't know what to do anymore because we have said for all along, well, we, we, we ex- accept you. I mean, we, we tolerate you in the sense that we're not going to judge you. We're not, you've already been judged. But this is too much. Now you're crossing a line. This sort of hard-hearted demandedness, this rabid, foaming, you will bow down. The Lord has got his winnowing folk fork out, friends. He's finding who the real church is. Is it me? Is it you? I hope so. So the central focus of our text clearly has to be the love of God in Christ. That's, that's, that's it in a statement. So the statement itself, as I mentioned already, is, is both at the same time simple but yet profound in its not only impact but its extent. So first of all, just a couple things about God before we get into verse 16. God is love. You know, there's a handful of God is statements. There's, I believe, five of them. There's God is spirit in John 4, 24. There's God is light in 1 John. There's a God is a, a consuming fire, right, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. But there's one place where he says God is love twice. There's two for emphasis from our human author of this gospel, John in 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16. Those God is statements are there. God is love. It's not that he is love. A title bestowed on him because he does loving things. No, he does loving things because he is by nature love. So he explains that to us, what that looks like. And we're to receive what the scripture has to say about it. So Anthony Hokema mentions that contemporary theologians describe love as the center and core of God's revelation. I was struck by that, and it's true, because it is his love, after all, and his goodness. We're going to talk about that word in a minute. Very important word, the goodness of God, that that compels him to reveal himself. Why? Because he looks down in pity, and he sees mankind fallen, and he loves this world. And he sees those that are writhing in that mud and says, he belongs to my son, she belongs to my son. We're going to extend out of this mercy, this grace that they do not deserve to remedy, to rectify. This is a reclamation process. They belong to him, my son. My son will go get them. My son will take their place in punishment. Praise the Lord. So our triune God exists in loving relationship. The father and the son, the love there. I mean, there's, that's how they define it. That's how we understand what a re- relationship should actually look like. We start there. We start with the Trinity, the love that the son has for the father and the type of love the father has for the son is is powerful. Like God's love for the world as well. God's love with his, for his people is a special love. He uses terms like, like marriage and, and, and unfaithfulness and, and words that make you blush that I won't even repeat when it comes to the unfaithfulness of his people. So it's a powerful, powerful love that condescends into our hearts restores our soul and fixes for eternity our destiny to be with him because he says if you'll allow you belong with me I would that I would tabernacle with men 
men and women, that I would have the full family of God together with me in glory. But you can't the way you are. You're filthy and ragged. We need to wash you and clean you. We need to give you a new set of clothing, new garments you will wear. We see that in the scriptures. Zechariah and other places, just these be- this beautiful imagery of cleaning us up. We've talked about that in previous uh, sermons recently, that cleansing process. So it's in and through his son, Jesus Christ, that he does this. He reveals himself. His boundless love to man comes through Jesus Christ. So the scope of God's love is vast and comprehensive. It compasses the entire world, but in different forms, as I mentioned. He has a love for the world. Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. But there's a particular love, of course, that he has for those whose names are etched in the book of life, those who the Father has chosen to be the bride of his Son. Martin Luther said that he describes God as an abyss of eternal love. It's an an abyss. I like that word because where's the bottom? Where's the end of an abyss? You'd, You'd miss the definition, wouldn't you, if you gave it parameters and boundaries? It's an abyss of love. He's tasted of that love, hasn't he? I would say Augustine has as well. Those who had a very, very difficult past where they misunderstood God and they railed against his will and then were saved. That's Martin Luther. It's, a, it's an abyss of love for him. So the biblical uh, emphasis of God's love is on his, the action of his love, the outworking of it in terms of his benevolent acts, the things that he does. And that's how we define love then is benevolence. And I, I want to look at those terms as we go along too, because they're very important. But love is much more than that. It's much more than benevolent acts, isn't it? It, it, it has within it um, God's power to it in order to complete the benevolent acts. But we have to be careful at this moment because if God were only power, it would be dangerous, wouldn't it? And if God were only love without power, that love would be useless. He couldn't do anything about it. So he has both. He has great unlimited power and his love is everlasting. So he can do it do something with that power. What? In this case, he can find a way in his wisdom and that power to save a remnant, to save mankind in that sense. And we're grateful for that. So God's love has emotion to it that compels him to act. When you get worked up emotionally, it compels you to do, uh, take certain actions, whatever those are in uh, that that comport with that particular emotion that you're feeling. And it's the same with God. And when he looks down, he is quite moved, quite grieved by what he sees. And he's moved by that. Moved to do something about it. It's pity. It's mercy. It wells up. It becomes a great power in terms of its compassion. Because the mercy says something needs to be done. The pity and the compassion says, we're going to figure out what gets, needs to get done. Grace and the cross and all of the rest are the means by which God loves us in a way that saves our eternal souls. We're pretty powerful. So he's got emotions, many. First John 3, 1. I think we need to stop at this moment, just even in this introduction, and read this verse. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, knowing our hearts, our wretched souls, the things that we think, the way we think about each other. God have mercy, and He does. Verse 16, we're going to look at four uh, points this morning, and it begins with 
verse 16, and the source of all love, of course, we see. And this is breaking down verse 16 in these four points. And we, I hope to be able to finish with verse 17 and 18 because it really belongs with this treatment, I believe. But we'll see what God does. So the first two words, for God. So we know that apart from God, there is no hope to even understand love, let, let alone practice it, anything he would uh, consider love. So for God, the source of all love is God. And why is he saying that now? Why the word for? We could also put the word because in there. What's he becausing? He's becausing verse 15 when he said to Nicodemus that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. Now we have to put a period somewhere. We're in this timeline continuum and we have to stop and go have lunch and do other things and come back. But in the context, that's what he's addressing. Because, be, what, what's the because there for that? Whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life. Why? Because God. That's why. Because God. God is love. There you go, Nicodemus. God is love. So he, he's dismissing this, Nicodemus, all along. I think it's intriguing, and I think these are massive seeds that are being planted. We believe he's, he's saved as John goes on. We hope to see that as we go into chapter 7 and following. We see him acting on behalf in defense of Jesus. But right now, you've just taken my entire life all that I've ever believed, all that I've ever striven for in my life, all of it, all of my accomplishments, all of the work, all of it, and summarily thrown it in the trash can. You turned my life completely upside down. That's why I believe he's not talking anymore. This isn't there's no more interrogatives. There's no more discussion. There's no more scratching his head question. He's I would say he's dumbstruck. If this is true, everything I thought about religion is wrong. Well, basically, mm -hmm. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16. John 3 and verse 7. You must be born from above. Remember that? Nicodemus, think about this. This is Therein lies the rub. This is the crux of the matter. By the way, we get that word crux from cross. You probably knew that already. This is the cross of the matter. It's the crux of the matter. It's the centerpiece of the entire matter. You must be born from above. So I mentioned that I, as I was reading um, some in John uh, frames, the doctrine of God, he's got probably just over 800 pages there. No, I didn't read them all for this sermon. <laughs> I can promise you, you know me better than that. But uh, he treats love as an attribute of God's goodness. And then he lists goodness as one of those attributes, but it's under the overall rubric of goodness. Because God is good, he loves, he's, he does good things, and, and, and so on. All of that flows, according to, to frame, from his goodness. Because God is good and God is love, he is therefore benevolent. Now, you hear that term, but I think it bears defining. He's benevolent. So there's two things that I want us to understand, and so I'm going to give you the definitions for them. Benevolent, here's the definition. Being disposed, in other words, it's your nature, Two, disposed to promote the prosperity and happiness of others. Isn't that great? That's God. That's all he ever wants to do. Why? Because that's his nature. He wants you to prosper. The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. That's not a lecture. That's a heart. I want you to do these things and, and take this perspective because I want you to be blessed. Another fair translation of that term in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, is bliss. That's what you're going to know when you get to heaven, isn't it? You know, you can appropriate some of that now. 
Nicodemus, Mark. So it's being disposed that way. In other words, he's predisposed to do that because it's his nature, because he's good. We've so watered down that word. It's about as watered down as the word love. And I wish we didn't do that. This is a massive term. Love and goodness are, are massive terms. We need to understand, now more than ever, do we need to understand what love looks like and what it isn't. So because he's benevolent, the creatures that bear his image are beneficent. Do you know the difference between those terms? I didn't either until this week. (laughs) It's wonderful, though. So I want to share this with you. So that means we're beneficent or we're capable of doing or producing good. Isn't that awesome? But we're not, that's not engendered from our, our nature because we're fallen. But because we're image bearers, when God comes out of his goodness and does something about our predicament, we now have the capacity to do things that he says, well done, well done, my child. Be like your father who is in heaven, who is perfect. Be perfect like him. How many times have we stumbled over that verse in the Sermon on the Mount? My, oh boy, that's a task. You know what? We're like Nicodemus when we say that. Do you realize that? Oh, what do I got to do? Oh, I got to be perfect. That's what he wants Nicodemus to realize. It's impossible for you to keep the law of Moses. If you were honest right now, Nicodemus, you would admit that you failed probably in many areas, but that doesn't even matter because your heart is fallen. Your heart, the the issue of depravity, the noetic effects of sin, your mind is fallen. All of these things, there's only one person that you love, and that's Nicodemus. Hopefully Mrs. Nicodemus. So we have that capacity now in Christ to be beneficent, which is doing or producing good. Aren't you happy about that? Let's, let's do that, shall we? Especially now, can we please do that? Praise God is right. We can be like Him. Do things beneficial to mankind must come from God because He's the source of all goodness. He's the one who by nature is benevolent. So that's, that's being by nature someone who can only do good. Now, if that's God, and it is, now you can understand Romans 8.28 a little better. What do you mean you don't remember which verse that is? All things work to... <clears throat> okay. <laughs> no, you did good. You did good, right? All things work together for what? Because he's good and you have that capacity now in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Or, but it's our choice. He doesn't doesn't force anybody by the point of a sword. Look, you need to look like me. Now get to it. Now that's how Nicodemus thinks. Just let him reign. Why won't we just yield to the Holy Spirit? That's a fruit of his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Thank Goodness, that was pretty good. <laughs> we, we, we can do it. That's the good news. We can do it. Yes. First John 4, 7 to 10, this human author, he, he can't stop refer, you know, treating love in that first epistle of his beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. He's the source of all love. He's the source of all goodness, therefore. And whoever loves has been born of God. Nicodemus, there it is. You have to be born of God. You have to be born from above. Why? Because you're face down in the mud, no heartbeat, you're flatlining, you have been your entire life, you were a spiritual stillborn. Only the body is animated. For what purpose? Let's not talk about it. The things that we do on our own apart from Christ with this body that belongs to him. You see, love is a matter of possession. I don't, I don't own any of this. It's his. To use in service 
Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? To do good works. Oh, why are we tempted to think like Nicodemus with that? Oh, yeah, that's right. We got to do good work. No. We got to be the psalmist of Psalm 119. (laughs) Whatever those good things are, Lord, I can't stop writing about it because it engenders love in me and I have an effulgence of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to do good things. It's easy to do bad things. Yeah. Verse 8 of 1 John 4, anyone who does not love does not know God. And that's a term of intimacy and possession. Foreknowledge, right? Because God is love. Verse 9, in this, the love of God was manifest, made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. Here we go. So that we might live through him. That's how we do it. I'm called upon to do these good things through him. You remember the rich young ruler? We know that you're a good teacher and I want to join your merry band of disciples. What do I need to do? I've done everything else according to the law of Moses from knee high to a grasshopper up. What what do I lack? Why do you call me good? Jesus said. And you're struck as a reader, aren't you? You're like, whoa. Why do you call me good? There is only, and here's here's the point. There is only what? One that's good. What is he, what a loving thing to do. What's he trying to show him? That he needs to see that Jesus is whom? God. There's only one that's good, and that's God. Crickets. Okay, he's riding off. Verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God. Isn't that humbling? But that He loved us. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He can't get off of that message because that is the message. Isn't it? Without it, we have no chance, no opportunity to love to love one another. You remember some of Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before he left? Before he was ready to face the cross in John 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you. He wants to make sure they know us because from there he'll have more teaching in verse 14 and 15 and 16, but then they come get him, don't they? And that's the first thing he says out out of the Last Supper. Listen, a new commandment. It's not new. We're supposed to love our neighbor. And our neighbor, we've determined, is all Jews. It's the nation of Israel, right? No, no, no. He, he qualifies it. No, love the way I have loved you. That's how you love one another. And when you do that, then people will know you're my disciples. You will look like Jesus, and you will bring me to life. How are we doing with that? Let's keep going. Let's keep appealing to him. We loved only because he first loved us. Verse 19 from that chapter in 1 John. Well, he took that love then to those that believe and he poured it out in the heart. We read Titus 3 uh, verse 5 where through the washing of what? Regeneration. That's what coming to life is. And Nicodemus, if you were wondering what sort of set of procedures or works, if you were looking for a manual on how to do that, it doesn't exist. He's like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. It's a prerogative of God. It belongs to a sovereign God. He knows who those names are, and he fully intends to come for them. And he will, and he has. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us what? Alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Second point. So he is the source of all love. Apart from him, we would be lost forever because there'd be no hope, no source. 
No source. But our creator is the source. Secondly, the sphere of God's love. What's the sphere? Well, let's look at the next four words. God so loved the world. That's a pretty big sphere, isn't it? It's global. What do you think Nicodemus thinks of that? <laughs> you think that challenged his preconceived notions? Uh-huh. Can it challenge ours? <clears throat> There's some people that you see in the news or wherever and the things that they're doing, and you're thinking, are you praying for them? Am I praying for them? I don't want them in heaven with me. I'm, saying, I'm from the same town that Jeffrey Dahmer is. How about that? I wrote a paper when I was at Masters. Oh, my, it stood some young guys on their head. I was the old guy. I'm always the old guy. But I wrote a paper. <laughs> Sorry, Jerry. <laughs> uh, but I wrote a paper. Don't be. It's a, a class in um, editorial writing, so it was an editorial. Uh, don't be surprised if you see Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven. And I'm telling you, those students were like, no way, no way. Did you know that a pastor came? And did you know he had a testimony of a grandmother who was a Lutheran? Did you know that he quoted scripture at the trial, right? Did you know that that pastor came and that he was baptized in some little pool? At least that's what the, that's what the news had shared at the time. And that's what made me think of, don't be surprised if you see Jeffrey Dahmer. Of course, he was beat to death in prison shortly after that, but God saved his soul, if this is true. Right? He so loved the world. First, the, you know, this verb, agapao, he uses it 36 times in this gospel. This is the first time he's using it. Agape is the, is the noun, and you're familiar with that. Why does he say so loved? Why not just God loved the world, so we saved? God so loved the world. When you say to a loved one, your children or your spouse, not just I love you, I, I, and, and let's get this squared away. Valentine's Day is coming up, okay? Just a heads up. By the way, this one, this Valentine's Day is the 35th anniversary of a date I had with a beautiful curly-headed girl in New York City. So um, if I'm like a high schooler today, uh, now you know why. I so love her. That, that's, that's speaking to the range of his love. That, that's speaking to the expanse of it, the extent of it. He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. That he will do whatever it takes. And he's got the power to do it. And he's got the means to do it. He so loved the world. The scale of it. The world is cosmos. It's a universal term. You're familiar with that. So God chose to love the entire world. We call it common grace, right? For the entire world, common grace. Because they enjoy the same things that we do in life. Most of them. And you remember Matthew 5, referring to the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 5.45, your father who is in heaven makes his son rise on the, what? The evil and the good and sends rain, now it's the just, rain on the just and on the unjust. They get the same rain, they get the same sun, they get the same general call. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But they get to enjoy their life, and as long as they're breathing, we pray for them. We witness them, and hopefully they're seeing something of the love of Christ in us. Doing beneficent things on his behalf. So Jesus sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world, but not everybody's saved, right? We talked about that. Only those who what? Believe. Only those who believe. And that's the prayer of those who understand a grace that is sovereign. We appeal to him as our father. Father, please do something in their heart. Please. 
I don't know what folks that deny that doctrine pray for. Maybe you can help me understand. Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? The implication is he's what? Both. He's a God who is imminent right here, right now, actually in us, outside of us, through us, around us. He's imminent, and he's also what? Starts with a T. Transcendent. Absolutely otherly. Removed that in a, in a distance cannot be measured. Once you use the word distance, you're already lost. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Is that meant to scare us? It's to give us hope for those people that we love and we're like, they're just way too far gone. I mentioned somebody I love very much. They're very, very gone. So this is my prayer. This is my belief. This is what I hold on to. Am I a God who, whose arms are short? Am I a, a God who can't do something because it's far away? I gave you. I invented distance. There is no distance to me. I'm with him now. And I love him more than you do. And that's humbling, isn't it? He can't hide in secret places where he, God can't see him. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? We, we, we shorthand him by definition, by understanding, by our perception of him, don't we? Isaiah 50, verse 2, Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? No, you're, you are mighty to save, right? That's what we sing. You are mighty to save. Isaiah 59, 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. I hear you. I dug that hole in the side of your head. That's the way the scripture puts it. Don't look at me weird. Psalm 139, 7-10, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. He's getting it now, isn't he? Did he think, maybe... Did he make the mistake of thinking when he was on that rooftop looking at Bathsheba that he, God couldn't see him because he was on the roof? We can be that crazy sometimes. Let's talk about the inexhaustible extent of God's love for those who belong to him. So we know the extent includes the world, the entire world. That's the sphere of God's love. But within that world, it includes this. As we are running to God on behalf of those who have run from God in their lives. Let me give you some encouraging biblical passages. Isaiah 43, 5-7, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. He's, this is sovereignty, folks. And to the south, do not withhold. You can't hold on to somebody who belongs to me. Do not withhold. Bring this, my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. If they belong to me, if my name is written on their heart, I'm coming for them. That's why we call him the hound of heaven. He's not safe anywhere. I'm coming for him. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my, what? Glory. Whom I formed and made. How about Deuteronomy 30, verse 4? If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. That imagery in both those passages of him gathering. What did Jesus say when he was outside of, right? When he's outside of Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I would have been a, a that would have come and gathered you, but you would not. So we, we can't, Make them believe God has, to, God has to change their heart. 
In John 13 and verse 1, I love the way that chapter starts. That's the chapter with the Last Supper in it, remember? And he starts it this way. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How about that? How about that? This is to completion. I'm, I'm going to love them all the way through into perfection, which means eternal glory. I will do it. Does it remind you of Philippians 1.6? The good work that I've begun, I will complete. That's, that's the idea. What, what sort of love is this? Considering that I was his dead and blind enemy of his, according to Romans 5, the enemy of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, in the first part of 8, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, what? Never fails. And another version? Never ends. Both are great. I like both, both those terms. They're both fair treatments of the word. Love never ends. I trust him for that. Both in keeping me and in going after somebody I love. Don't stop praying. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. That is an amazing sphere of love, isn't it? Immeasurable breadth, length, height, depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses what? You can't, you don't even have enough of a mind in what he gave us. You don't have the capacity to, to absorb his love, it, or understand it completely. We can apprehend it. We can't comprehend it. We'll spend eternity learning more things, the greatness of God's love as it expands before us for an eternity, and we rejoice in glory and exaltation from now until now, until now, until now, until now. <clears throat> dot, dot, dot. Pretty amazing, pretty remarkable. that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He, in him was the fullness of deity. Right? This is Colossians. And you are complete in him. We have that capacity. We have that ability to express the love of Jesus Christ so that they might see him. So that those who are undiscovered family members, eternal family, might see him and recognize him and fall down before him, not us, but him, in abject grief and inexpressible joy all at the same time, right? Isaiah 51, 9 to 11. For those we, we want to pray for, here's another passage. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. We call upon God to be awakened. O Lord, stretch out that arm. Impress us, Lord. What father doesn't want to do that? Show us, O oh Lord. I cannot see a way that this loved one is going to be saved. It's so cauterized. It's so full of scar tissue. I don't know. But that brings him great glory, doesn't it? Making that heart alive again and that heart tender again and watching it beat and go from flatlining to starting to show some activity. And some of you have seen some of the activity of the heart as it's slowly coming alive and you have hope and you continue to pray and you watch your Father, your God at work. It has to be Him that does it. Two, 
verses from two psalms that pretty much give us the full sphere, the full scope of God's love. Psalm 33, verse 5, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That's pretty extensive. But then Psalm 36 and verse 5 says this, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. That's what David discovered in Psalm 139. If I go up, if I go over, if I go down, if I go through, if I hide, if I, what, doesn't matter, he's there. If he buried himself in sand. These are material things that God created. That's, that's how dull we can be in our understanding. He created all of it. God's spirit, he's everywhere always. He's omnipresent God. Romans 8.38, this is why Paul can write this to the conclusion of that powerful, powerful chapter. Verse 38 and 39 of Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pretty amazing stuff. Pretty amazing stuff. We're going to have to pick up the next two points next week. I'm out of time. So don't give up on those that you love and those you're witnessing to. Remember how God is defining what His love is. His love is a searching love. His love is an inexhaustible love. His love is an unfailing love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. I pray, O oh Lord, that you help us to embrace these truths you've just revealed to us. O oh Lord, I pray, even now, even now, I, we're hard-pressed to think that you would ever call any assembly of people together without someone needing, perhaps all of us, in different ways to hear this message. We thank you that you've loved. We thank you that you've so loved that it extends to the four corners, as it were, of this world. And those we love, we don't know where they are, but you do. Track them down, O oh Lord. Save them. And if you're speaking into someone's heart, even now, Lord, receive their prayer. Speak to them. Bring salvation through the only means of salvation, and that is to believe. To believe what you've said about how we acquire salvation. That we would repent, acknowledging our sins, and come crying to you and say, Lord, have mercy. And you are rich in mercy, is how we would find you. Lord, you are great in your love as you would come to meet those who would simply say, Lord, I believe, I believe. May that be all of us here today. I pray for your glory's sake. Amen.